My name is Sam. I'm happy to be speaking with you this morning. This is my first real-time sermon I've done in a while, so I actually love the fact that I actually get to see faces and smiles or grimaces, depending on what I'm saying, and uh, excited to be up here. So this morning, we're going to continue to talk about our fill-in-the-blank series where we look at how the story we tell ourselves may not be the story that God tells about us. And today we're going to be talking about a really cool passage in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. And more specifically, we'll talk about our past and how we believe God sees our past. So have you ever experienced a situation like this? I've unfortunately experienced it several times. You're in a store, you're at a restaurant, you're out and about town, and someone approaches you from your past. You haven't seen them in, in years. You don't even, you may not even recognize them or remember their name right off the bat. And all that you know about this person is either past rumors that you heard from high school or some random bit of information that you remember from like sixth grade, like, oh yeah, this is the guy that matches his colored socks to his colored shirt in sixth grade. You know, he was that guy. So you try to like sneak a peek I wonder if he's still doing that in his 40s, if he's still accessorizing in, uh, you know, decades later. So I don't know if y'all have had that experience. It happens to me on occasion. Um, so it's hilarious the things you remember about people. I met a potential client uh, one day for lunch and found out that he was married to a girl that I went to high school with. And all I knew about this girl were two things. One, that she really liked Depeche Mode and that she wore bowling ball shoes to school every day. Every day, bowling ball shoes like they were sneakers. And being the clueless individual that I am, after he waxes eloquently about his wife's amazing photography and professional art business, um, I uh, chime in with, uh, with this little gem. I say, hey, does she still wear bowling shoes? <laughs> yeah. You know? And of course, I got this blank stare because he had never heard this, probably because his wife did not want him to know that she wore bowling shoes during high school. Um, and I got this blank stare, but that did not stop me from using my personal superpower, which is embarrassing myself. That's what I do. And I said, oh yeah, dude, she wore bowling shoes uh, to school every day. I used to think it was so cool. She's a couple of grades ahead of me. Yeah, it was awesome. And he said that he had never heard that story and that he'd just have to ask her about this. I know you might find this shocking, but I never heard from that potential client ever again. Uh, these are the things that happened. I know that's shocking. So most of the stuff we remember about folks is harmless little trivia, right? Things from growing up. But sometimes those past histories can really affect our lives in negative ways. For some people, the events of the past are like cages that keep us where we live inside them. Cages of our own making, maybe family or friends or maybe the general public. And the internet is forever. I don't know if you figured this out by now, but it very much is. And people love labels because they make it easy to categorize people. You know, put that label on that person, you're done with them, right? So we deal with this in different ways. We can laugh it off and say, oh, you know, that's just part of who I was at the time. That's probably the most healthy thing to do. Or a lot of people will defend their past behaviors or their past likes or dislikes uh, in the past. And some people have this amazing, insane ability to just pretend like things just never happened. Like, it just didn't happen. You know, it's just easier to block it out. It's, it's as if saying that it didn't happen makes people forget what they already know, right? I talked with someone the other day. Uh, this guy swore up and down that a well-known corroborated event in his life not that long ago simply just never happened. It just didn't happen. 
And I didn't challenge him because, A, you can't reason with crazy. I don't know if you figured that out yet. But what good would it do? He had already decided that's how he was going to handle that situation, regardless of any amount of evidence that I put in front of him. It was just easier to pretend that the damage that this guy had done was just, it, that it just never happened. It was easier that way. And on a cultural level, we're even at a, an extremely odd place um, in our world with the issue of the past. We live in a world where any random lapse of judgment can be dug up, it can be plastered on the web, and then we can be, quote, canceled. Now we have a statute of limitations on various crimes. I don't know if you knew about this in our legal system, but cancel culture has no statute of limitations, no timelines, requires no evidence, and you can cancel anybody about anything if you get the right mob with pitchforks together to help you with it. So the past can always haunt us, and it can potentially hurt us. And in a way, we do this in the church as well. There are plenty of examples about this, but we do it in a slightly different way. We're a very sin-conscious group, aren't we? We're always bringing up our past sins and often still use them to characterize ourselves long after we've accepted forgiveness for them, like we're doing God some big favor by still feeling terrible about things. We like, uh, feel like this is like some form of, of piety or religiosity that we can do to impress God. And so here we have our first fill-in-the-blank of the day. And we believe that God sees our past as permanent, that God sees our past as permanent, and that God never lets past sins go, and because of that, neither should we. And we have years and years of teaching reminding us of how we failed God and how we should internalize that and make that part of our identity of who we are. And in the church, we call people who are self-aware, uber-aware of their own sins, we call them humble. Oh, that's such a humble, humble person. They remember who they are, where they came from. But really, that's not the definition of humble at all. What a good therapist would call that is shamed, a shamed individual, an abased person, self-voluntarily shamed person. If touting our own unworthiness is the thing to do, but it's not. It's not. Instead, God sees our past not as permanent, but we are the ones who see our past that way. And so we assume that if we're binding ourselves to our past, then God must be doing the same thing. So when we say God sees our past at permanent, what we're really saying is that we see our past at permanent. And if that's the case, then we're going to project that on to God, right? So this is, this is a no bueno situation <laughs> that we find ourselves in. It keeps us from moving on a lot of times. So let's do a little reprogramming real quick with just a couple of questions. Here's the first one. If God wanted us to abase ourselves, then why did he wipe out that shame on the cross? Did the cross do anything or did it not? Why does God ask us to come to him as little children, innocent, full of life, happy to see him, unafraid, unashamed of who we are? Why, through the Apostle Paul, did God tell us to boldly enter his throne room like we belong there? Because we're royalty, according to God. 
whether we choose to believe it or not. That's how God sees us. And that's the hard part about making this bridge to the other side. It's because God wiped out our sin, our shame, and our past on the cross. So if God has forgiven and cleansed us, why are we still groveling in our past shame, canceling ourselves at every turn? God doesn't want us to be abased and humiliated. He wants us raised to life, free to live in relationship with him. He's not ashamed of our past. Why should we be? So let's look at the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and see how Jesus views this. So from the top, we have Jesus heading from Judea back to Galilee because his followers and John the Baptist's followers can't decide on who's the better pastor. That's kind of what's going on. No, man, John the Baptist, no, dude, Jesus, man. Come on, that's fighting words, man. Come on, you want to go? That's kind of what's happening. I know that's shocking to hear that church people are territorial, territorial and squabble about silly things, but evidently it's been going on a very long time. And so that's where we find Jesus in the middle of this. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going back to Galilee where people are, uh, people are cool up there, man. You know, it's out, you know, it's out in the country. People, uh, people know each other. It's, uh, it's easier going. So that's what he does. But instead of taking the path around Samaria, he walks straight through the middle of Samaria. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, like you heard in the scripture, because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other. They were racially and culturally divided and exclusive from each other. But religiously, they actually very much worshiped a very similar style of Judaism in in most ways. So there was a lot of feuding between these groups. And part of the problem was that there were several sites that were important to the Jews that were in Samaria. And the Jews didn't have access to it because the Jews refused to go up there because they didn't want to be around the Samaritans. So you've got this really weird situation where they would not step foot in Samaria, except for Jesus is, that dude is a straight up honey badger. He just does whatever he wants, and he just goes, walks right through the middle because that's the quickest way on Google Maps, and that's the button he pushed. So he's just going straight through the middle. That's what he does. Now, Jacob's well is an important place to the Jews, and it also represents the birth of Jewish lineage as well as denotes the importance of kind of the traditional family unit in that society. So around lunchtime, around noon, Jesus' posse heads down into this village to get some food, right, because everybody's hungry. And so Jesus just hangs out up at the well waiting for them to come back. And at that time, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. Well, why is that weird? Because in that time, in that land, no one drew water in the middle of the day because the sun at noon is right overhead. And it is what? It is hot. It is super super warm in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. So the women in the village would all get together and then travel early in the morning or later in the evening as a group where it's safe to get water for all their families in the village. And then they would walk back together. So that's our first clue as to what's going on here. There's some type of social stigma or past mistake that's keeping this woman from being part of the group in that village. She had been ostracized in some way. Now, Near Eastern wells like this one uh, would be larger than the narrow open ones that you might think about in the U.S. They're wide and they have this cover over the top to keep sand and grit out of it. 
um, because you don't want that in your water, right? Anybody had sandy water? It's not good. You don't want that. So that's why that was up there. And so there's a small hole in the top, just big enough to fit down the lower down the standard kind of leather water pouch that every family would own. So that's why Jesus is sitting at the well. It's not some miracle where he's walking on air or anything. He's literally sitting on the well. There's plenty of place. He could probably lay down and chill for a while, take a nap if he wanted to because of the way it was uh, set up. So a couple more clues to tell us about Jesus's interaction with uh, the Samaritan lady. First, when a Samaritan approached the well, a rule-keeping Jew would have backed up the required 20 feet not to defile himself, okay? But Jesus didn't do that, did he? He stayed put. He was comfy there on the well, was not worried about that, so he just stayed there. And then he did something else even crazier in that culture at the time. He then spoke to this strange woman that he had never met before. Once again, not something you would normally ordinarily do back then. We have some unknown Samaritan female here coming to the well in the middle of the day. And then here's another clue as to what's going on. Jesus did not have a leather bucket, a leather pouch like like this one. Okay, should he? Yeah. Every traveler back then would have carried their own leather pouch like you see in Western's canteen on the back of a horse, something like that. You would have carried your own leather pouch for your travels. But Jesus earlier had told his disciples to take nothing for the travels that they were about to do. That included their water supply pouch that they would have taken with them. So that's kind of, it's kind of a weird situation. So let's stop here for a second and talk about it. I want you to understand this, this water bucket thing and why it would have been kind of a big deal. So back then, if you didn't carry your own water bucket your own leather pouch for water, you would be dependent on anyone and everyone else's good graces that you encountered in order to keep you alive to have some water. So they were dependent on everybody, anyone that they encountered as an act of faith to bring them to a place of relationship and contact with different people. So here's a good ministry lesson for us. Oftentimes the best way to approach people is not with all the answers. It's not with all the answers. It's to ask them for something that you need from them. Depend on their good graces so that you can establish relationship and then talk more about where that relationship might lead. You know, you can ask them for something that they can supply. People let their guard down when they know that they can help you instead of being forced to receive help that they may not want. I know that sounds kind of backwards compared to the way we normally do this. We go into places, oh, here's all the things you need from us. We're here to drop off this or do this for you. When a lot of times people are like, yeah, 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 you know, these people are back again. Instead of assuming that the best plan is to educate sinners or the poor, the desolate, the downtrodden, maybe we should ask them what they need, ask them what matters most to them instead of assuming we already know what matters most. Isn't that what Jesus did in this situation? He said, hey, can you help me? I need some water. I'm thirsty. It's the the middle of the day. He does this in other passages, like when he meets Peter for the first time before they haul in that big uh, catch of fish. He says, hey, can I use your boat? Can I get in your boat and we push out just away because of this big crowd? People don't ever talk about that part. They just talk about the haul at the end with the fish. But Jesus asked for something. Hey, I really need some help. Can you help me? 
You know, he does that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is up in the tree and we're like, hey, come down, I'm eating at your house. But really what Jesus is doing is, hey, Nick, can you come down out of the tree? I am so hungry. I've been traveling all day. Can we go to your house and eat? I hear you've got a lot of food and uh, it's a jam up place to eat dinner. Can we go eat? And Nicodemus comes down and that's where that relationship begins to start. So what's even more unusual about that? Jesus asked to drink from this defiled Samaritan leather bucket. So once again, a rule-keeping Jew would never have done this, defiled themselves in this way, but Jesus did. In allowing her to supply Jesus' need, he defiles himself according to Jewish law in that moment. By doing this, Jesus elevates her self-worth to that of someone who's strong enough to give to someone else and pure enough, not defiled, to offer that to someone else. Radical, radical idea during that time. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It just oozes the love of God in doing that for her. And it would have been an honor that she never would have bestowed upon herself or think that she would even deserve, yet Jesus does that. And then, and only then, does he begin to describe the living water that he can give her, the water of salvation. And she says, yeah, I've never encountered anybody like you. You treat me like a human. I want in on this living water deal. And then Jesus drops this bomb. He says, hey, go call your husband. Let's talk together with your husband here. And she replies, I have no husband. And he says, yeah, that's true. You've had five husbands. And the dude that you're with now, he's just a live-in boyfriend. And she says, oh, wow, I didn't know that you could read minds. That's amazing. And then uh, so she starts begin to do, doing something that's a little uh, unusual. She starts to backtrack in one of the most common ways that shamed people do. They start diverting and distracting, and she gets religious. Oh, you're a minister? You must want to talk about God all the time. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this. So that's what she does. She starts saying, asking theology questions about the religious sites in Samaria. And Jesus is like, Why do, you, do you really want to talk about that? I didn't know that's what we were talking about, right? Now, here, again, another life lesson. Shamed people, humiliated people that are afraid of their past, afraid of exposing their identity, will quickly redirect conversations in difficult situations to something else. I'll give you some examples. Scared to talk about personal accountability? Great. Let's talk about politics instead. Relations, relationships falling apart? Let's talk about what a boss you are at work and how you're killing it. Unsatisfied with your life? Let's talk about culture and entertainment. Don't want to talk about deep spirituality? Great. Let's debate doctrine and theology. That'll keep us off the real stuff we need to talk about. Now, Jesus cuts through all that, and he shares the gospel with her without judgment and isn't misdirected by these religious questions. He tells her exactly what she needs to know. I am the Messiah. The Father loves and accepts you. And your past lifestyle is not a hindrance to moving forward with me in this new life. That's what she needed to hear. Jesus changes this narrative. He gives her a springboard to change her life. What the woman thought was her identifying trait, her past indiscretions, this pattern 
of having her identity wrapped up in a long line of male suitors for identity's sake or intimacy's sake, whatever the case may be, Jesus says, hey, you don't have to do that. That's not nearly as important to me as you are. Jesus changes the fill in the blank to God sees your past as temporary. Temporary. Blip on the radar. A mere bump in the road to a redeemed life of fullness and abundance. We have so much trouble believing this. We have so much trouble understanding and believing this, not only that we can live this way, but that God doesn't punish us for the past and is quick to forgive and quick to forget. God then takes the life we give him and he begins to bring goodness, grace, and hope into our life. But, but, but what, about, what about all my past mistakes? Well, what about them? What about them? If God has forgiven you, why haven't we done the same? Why haven't we done the same for ourselves? Good question. Sometimes it's easier to stick with what you know than the newness of the unknown that will bring you to a better place. Think about that for a second. Over our lives, we are more likely to stick with old patterns and old behaviors because they're familiar, regardless of whether they're destructive or not, but because they're familiar to us, not because they're good for us. Was the Samaritan woman a bad woman? Not not more than anybody else. Not any more than anybody else. She was just continuing a pattern that that she had known from some deep wounds that she had had, just like, just like us, right? And if you'll notice something, Jesus didn't say, hey, as soon as you quit all your immoral behavior that everybody finds unbecoming, then you can have living water. No siree, Bob. He did not. He said, here's living water. Once you drink this, the patterns in your life, that you've been attempting to fill that space for intimacy will no longer be needed. You won't need that stuff. It'll fall off of you. You'll realize the fullness of who God is like a a snake shedding his skin. You just come out of those things that you knew before. They don't bind you anymore because something better has taken over and grown inside of you and moved you past the point of those patterns. Jesus says, your stability is with me. He says, your safety is with me. And most importantly, your future is with me. And it's going to look radically different than what you did before. So how about we just move past all this and look this direction to what God wants to do. As Lori comes up, I want to uh, put one more verse uh, in front of you this morning. There's no need to let something that no longer matters to God uh, matter to you. There's this beautiful passage in Psalms where it says that God just flippantly tosses our sins aside as far away as he can uh, from himself, like the east is from the west, like um, two North Pole magnets trying to stick together. You can't ever stick them together because they repel each other. It's because they're nothing alike. So they go, they go away from each other. It's a beautiful passage. That is the reality of who God is and what he wants us to understand. It's such a relief to know that God doesn't cancel us for the things that we may have done in the past. He's not into that. 
He's into restoration. He's into saying, yes, we acknowledge this, but that's not who you are anymore. This is who you are now. As far as the east is from the west. What a relief. It's a beautiful image, and we serve a beautiful God. Amen?